This episode is sponsored by Almoral. You're listening to the Derms and Conditions Podcast. So I want to welcome all our listeners to another fantastic Derms and Conditions podcast. And I have my new BFF with me today, a guy that I've gotten to know over the last two years. Met him a few years ago. He was presenting at a, at a an advisory board, and everybody's like, who the heck is this guy? Didn't take long to realize he has a tremendous amount to contribute to the area that we'll be talking about today. So I'm welcoming Dr. Chris Bunick. He's a physician and scientist at Yale University and associate professor of dermatology at Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut. Chris, it's great to have you here. Good morning. Good morning, Jim. Thank you so much for having me here. And I still remember two years ago uh, meeting you and just having a wonderful time talking about science and dermatology. Yeah, you look up the word wonderful in the dictionary, you see a picture of Jim Del Rosso for sure. But anyway, um, so the reason why I'm calling you today is sort of observed and, and have been involved with the subject of antibiotics, antibiotic use in dermatology, antibiotic resistance, and a lot of conventional ways that that topic has been looked at. And one of the things I know you have background in, I believe you also did some PhD work, is basically on looking at some of the structure activity relationships of, of antibiotics. And specifically, I saw you talk about saracycline and how it's different as a narrow spectrum tetracycline. How did you get into this? How, what did you, how did you find this? Yeah, so this <laughs> is a really interesting story. So let me back up to actually when I was in junior high school. So when I was in junior high school, you know, everyone has to do a science fair project. I actually did my science fair project on trying to mimic growing protein crystals in the microgravity environment of space. So how did I do that? Well, my father was actually an X-ray crystallographer working for Oak Ridge National Laboratory, and he actually sent some of his protein crystal experiments up into space on the space shuttles to the Mir Space Station and the International Space Station. So as a kid, I was super excited about, hey, science in space. And I thought this was really cool. So I did my junior high school science fair project on this. Next thing you know, I fell in love with structural biology and biochemistry. Uh, I then went on to, to Vanderbilt University where I did my PhD in biochemistry and, and then did x-ray crystallography research. And then fell in love with dermatology. And so the question was, how do I blend the research I love with the clinical issues I love in dermatology? And I thought that crystallography was a wonderful opportunity to look at how medications in dermatology work at a, at a high resolution level, at a molecular level. And one of the biggest medications uh, that's prescribed in all the dermatology are oral antibiotics. And I, I think a lot of our patients would be surprised to know that the, the precise mechanisms of how a lot of these antibiotics we prescribe are, are still not known. And so that was kind of a, how I got into structural biology. And then the problem is, you know, I'm, I'm prescribing these antibiotics for my patients, but I really wanted to know how are they working? And, and so when this new medication, sericycline that you mentioned came out, I think that the question was, well, how is this one different? Why is it different? And, and that's kind of the, how my research got spearheaded into sericycline. 
So I'm picturing myself in junior high school, and you mentioned a lot of falling in love. And all I could remember is kind of falling in love with that girl in homeroom. I remember her name was Doreen, and I didn't hear you mention anything like that. Did anything like that ever happen in your life, Chris, or was, or was it always these molecules that you Well, I, I think most of the girls in my f- uh, classes, physics, math, English, uh, I don't think they wanted anything to do with me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought maybe you'd tell them, hey, I'm the guy who figured that those crystals out and stuff. But anyway, uh, we'll move on to that's a that's a that's another conversation for another time. So so Chris, I know you have really looked a lot also at antibiotic resistance aspects and how the structure uh, you know structure activity relationships could influence the you, you know what pathogens and uh, an antibiotic or what organisms an antibiotic may affect. Can you expound on that a little bit? I mean, what have we been missing all these years that we're finding out about now? Yeah, I think this is a really important question. So if you had asked me this question about a few years ago and you had mentioned the word microbiome, you know, I think I was an early skeptic. Eh, Is this microbiome stuff, is it really important to human health? And what we're learning more and more is that this human microbiome, all these bacteria, viruses, and fungi that live on our body naturally as symbiotic organisms, they actually contribute to our health. And when you have disruption of this uh, microbiome, which is called dysbiosis, uh, it actually has health consequences. And of the 100 trillion microbes that live on our body, 80 trillion live in the gastrointestinal tract or the gut. So when we prescribe antibiotics for our patients that have acne vulgaris, acne rosacea, or other inflammatory disorders in dermatology, a lot of these antibiotics are what are called broad spectrum, meaning that they hit a lot of different types of organisms, what are called gram-positive bacteria and gram-negative bacteria. And in the gut, we have a large amount of gram-negative bacteria. So if you're trying to treat acne which is thought to be in part related to a gram-positive bacteria, but you're using an antibiotic in your patient that hurts their gram-negative bacteria in the gut, this can cause gut dysbiosis. And we're learning more and more that this alteration of the gut microbiome has significant health consequences. In fact, Jim, there's been papers showing that uh, gut dysbiosis can affect uh, a person's ability to respond to uh, vaccines, like Vimfluenza vaccine. Uh, it's linked to Alzheimer's and hypertension. And, and I think that we're just at the cusp of understanding how the organisms in our body contribute to our health. And so when we're talking about prescribing antibiotics for our patients, we have to be mindful that a lot of our antibiotics hit the good bacteria, not just the bad bacteria we're trying to treat. And, and this is kind of the big concept uh, in medicine, not just dermatology, but all in medicine called antibiotic stewardship. How do we use the right antibiotic at the right time to target the right organism for the right length of time that, that minimizes disruption of the normal host microbiome? Yeah, I think the tendency, and you know, I was involved in, you know, I, I actually consulted with some other dermatologists, Jim Layden, Guy Webster, Diane Tibetot, a few microbiologists back in about 2005 and said, you know, there's a lot of emphasis that too many antibiotics were being prescribed, package inserts were being changed. It was simply based on during flu season, the belief by 
by the CDC and the FDA that a lot of patients were getting antibiotics when they didn't need them. But I sort of thought about it and said, we we write a lot of antibiotics. If we don't pay attention to what we're doing, somebody else is going to come in and say, hey, what are these dermatologists doing? And I found that a lot of our colleagues think that you know, I don't really think that it's making a difference what I'm doing. You know, I'm using doxycycline or tetracycline or something to, uh, you know, treat pee acnes at that time. And it's, I don't think it's really affecting anybody else. Yeah, we're not trying to tell you everything you do, you've do. you been doing for years is wrong. Antibiotics are important and they play a role. But we have to think about what we're doing and that we are creating resistance patterns. In fact, I'll ask you about this. Some of the antibiotics that we commonly use, uh, people don't realize have a prolonged effect in the GI tract. You know, and they, they actually, we used to think that you create resistant organisms and they go away quickly and everything returns back to normal quickly. But we found that that's really not the case. Can you expound on that some in terms of the other antibiotics we're using and how they might have a long-term effect or a prolonged effect on what's going on in the gut or elsewhere? Absolutely, Jim. So this is actually a very important uh, piece of science or, or data that I think both clinicians and patients need to understand. And that is that the microbiome, when it's altered by an antibiotic, in, in, in what you're referring to, the gut microbiome in particular, when it's altered by an antibiotic, there's new data that shows it can take up to two years, right? Two years. That's a long time for that gut microbiome to get back to where it normally was. So when we prescribe, and that's even after a short course of antibiotics, even a week, yes. right? So if you give a patient a week of antibiotics and in dermatology, sometimes we do it three months, six months, a year. And how, what is the consequence on that gut microbiome? And actually, so what we're learning is that it can alter the, the gut microbiome for years. And I think that that's a very important wake-up call for not only dermatologists, but all, uh, all clinicians that antibiotic stewardship, it, it's not a joke. It's actually real. And you, know, you talked about resistance, and I didn't address it uh, um, earlier, but there is a connection here. That, that the more we use antibiotics, and we use them because they're good, they work. So I, I don't want to say they're not, they're bad. They're absolutely wonderful medicines that help so many people. But there are consequences that we have to be mindful of. And when it comes to treating acne, a lot of dermatologists, and, and I confess, I was one of these dermatologists early in my career, where I don't see my patient getting hurt by my antibiotics. I don't see any problem. I don't see the resistance. Just because you don't see it doesn't mean it's not happening because it takes advanced research uh, and culturing of what, what you call P. acnes, which has now been renamed to C. acnes or QD bacterium acnes. It takes advanced culturing of this anaerobic gram positive organism to, to, to then look for resistant strains of C. acnes. And what we found is data in the United States from 1982 showed about 57% of all C. acne strains were resistant to doxycycline, which is one of the most prescribed antibiotics for acne in our country. That, that's high. Now, we don't really have, and I don't know why, uh, we don't have more recent data in the U.S., but more recent data in Jordan and, and Israel shows certainly around 15 to 25% of C. acne strains resistant to different uh, broad-spectrum tetracyclines. And so I think that resistance as a whole... We've sort of said it's not a big issue because we don't see it. 
But now that we're learning more and more how to study the microbiome, the answer is we are seeing it when you do the right scientific tests. And a great example I can give you, Jim, is one of my patients uh, a few uh, months ago said that on doxycycline, she needed probiotics to just tolerate it because doxycycline is known uh, as a broad-spectrum antibiotic to have a lot of GI uh, side effects, upset stomach, nausea, sometimes vomiting, especially if you take it on an empty stomach. But in, in this case, uh, I put her on sericycline as an alternative, this narrow-spectrum antibiotic that we were you know, briefly been talking about. So sericycline tends to have a lot less GI upset because it's what's called narrow spectrum, meaning that it doesn't tend to hit all these gram-negative organisms that live in our gut. And so this patient didn't need probiotics on sericycline. This patient actually had no GI upset on sericycline. And this was a real live example for me of the difference of uh, gut dysbiosis, microbiome perturbation, and how we may not see these side effects in dermatology all the time. It doesn't mean they're not happening or that our patients aren't suffering. And, and so I do think antibiotic stewardship going forward, we have to be mindful that these things are happening in our patients, whether we see it or we don't. Chris, we're going to take a break at the moment, and we'll get back to you in a moment. I have some thoughts I want to expound upon, but I'd like to hear a word from our sponsor. We would like to thank Almorol for sponsoring today's episode. So, Chris, I think it's really interesting what you said, because we think about the GI upset as being somewhat of a direct irritant effect of whatever compound it is interacting with the lining of the GI tract, whether it be, you know, regurged up into the esophagus in the stomach or even the, the proximal small intestine. And that may be part of it. But we haven't commonly thought about the fact that if we're changing sort of the the bacterial soup that's there, uh, changing it around, that that can also be contributing to some of these GI side effects. But there are a couple of parts to this when I think about the issue with saracycline. And, and I think it's important that additional research is being done. We have some of the interim analysis on the, the PROSES study, the patient reported outcomes for saracycline effectiveness and safety that I know you've been involved with. And I'm very proud of coming up with that name. And there's going to be information forthcoming, but the data is really looking very good in terms of the efficacy in the, in the real world experience and also the patient reported outcomes. So that will be forthcoming and hopefully we'll talk about that later. But looking at saracycline, the my antimi antimicrobial spectrum, the antibiotic spectrum, I think a lot of our colleagues, when they're prescribing doxycycline and minocycline, they forget that these are broad spectrum antibiotics. If you look at their indications, there are so many different organisms that these drugs both are used to treat. And we forget gram negatives are a significant part of that. We just think of it in the world that we're in, you know, treating a staph infection or treating acne and rosacea. But think, looking at saracycline from two parts of it, I'd like to like to get your insights on. The antibiotic spectrum, but also how those structure activity relationships change the side effect profile. The risk of photosensitivity is low. The, the GI side effects you mentioned is low. Vaginal candidiasis is low, uh, etc. So how do those structure activity relationships affect the non-microbiologic aspects of a drug? 
Wow, this is a great question. So one of the things that Chris, that, I only ask great questions. Come on, come on. I know, I know. That's why we're good friends. One of the things that was really important about the science that that my laboratory did uh, on sericycline was that we showed that one of the chemical groups that's on sericycline that makes it different than the other tetracyclines like doxycycline and minocycline, this group, what we call the C7 moiety, it actually has interactions with messenger RNA within the bacterial ribosome. And the bacterial ribosome or, or ribosomes in general, they, they make proteins, they translate proteins, they take messenger RNA and make protein. And we kill bacteria or uh, harm bacteria by giving them antibiotics that gum up that protein translation system so the bacteria can't make the proteins anymore. And, and we found that this sericycline uh, chemical moiety, uh, it has special interaction with the messenger RNA outside of the normal binding that tetracyclines generally have. This gives it an extra molecular contact. So that makes it harder for antibiotic resistance to the drug to develop. It helps anchor it stronger into its uh, target site. So those are very important. But it turns out that this C7 moiety also has an oxygen atom, a simple oxygen atom, right? We breathe oxygen, we need oxygen, but an oxygen atom in this moiety, uh, let me give you an example of how it actually leads to decreased side effect. So one of the other side effects that occurs a lot of times, in particular more with minocycline, is vestibular disturbance, dizziness, vertigo. And that's because it can cross the blood-brain barrier. And we have some new research that's not published yet, but it is soon to come out, showing that sericycline has a lower lipophilicity, which means, you know, like how, how hydrophobic it, like it is or how much it likes lipids. So it has a lower lipophilicity than minocycline. And we've shown in rats that it does not cross into the blood-brain barrier. And one of the properties of a chemical that can govern its lipophilicity is having oxygen atoms that can act as hydrogen bond acceptors. So we can actually trace back to the chemical structure of sericycline a key feature in this chemical group that makes it different that actually leads to lower lipophilicity and less blood-brain barrier penetration. And hence, sericycline has less vertigo, dizziness, less vestibular side effects. So here's a real-world application, and, and there's a publication that should be forthcoming pretty soon on this. So we're very excited to be able to connect the science to the clinical advance of this narrow-spectrum antibiotic. Um, but also, you're mentioning, you know, GI side effect. So, so the truth is that a lot of these broad spectrum antibiotics are harming the, the gut bacteria. It's not just an irritation of the lining. And by being narrow spectrum and sparing that gut, those gut organisms, um, it actually leads to this significant reduction in the the, the GI upset that's a common side effect of both mostly doxycycline, but also sometimes seen in minocycline. And there's a recent research paper that, that was just published by myself and, and my colleagues that are, are active in sericycline research, where uh, they looked at, we looked at the ability of, of sericycline versus minocycline in vitro, so to, to, to harm a panel of organisms that represent the normal organisms found in the human gastrointestinal tract. And what we found was that sericycline harms the gut bacteria 79% less 
than minocycline. That is huge. And this data has been corroborated independently by another group uh, just in the last week or so out of the United Kingdom, where they used a colon model. So colon and the bacteria that normally live in the colon, they use this special colon uh, model for the microbiome to look at sericycline versus doxycycline versus minocycline. And the results were astounding, Jim. They found that the narrow spectrum agent clearly had a significantly reduced effect on the gut microbiome compared to doxycycline and minocycline. And this is exactly the advance that a narrow spectrum antibiotic makes in the ability to care for our patients. Not only is it effective in doing what it's supposed to do in terms of uh, stopping the bacteria that are pathogenic, but it's protecting humans from some of these side effects that make antibiotics difficult to tolerate. You know, I, I think what we, we have to remember is that we give an antibiotic in good faith. We're treating a patient appropriately based on where they are, let's say, with their acne, and we're giving them a broad-spectrum tetracycline, let's say. So now you're selecting out, let's just say, E. coli, resistant E. coli, which E. coli is pretty high up on the radar screen of pathogens that our colleagues deal with that are often very difficult. We may not deal with it. So now that patient has that resistant organism, and they may not necessarily have a problem, but people just are contiguous. They pass organisms on to other people. It's pretty well documented. So you don't necessarily see where that resistant organism is going and how it might affect someone else. Uh, to me, the message to my colleagues when I speak with them, and I'd be interested in, in your view on that, is when you're going to prescribe an antibiotic, decide, first of all, why and if you really feel the patient needs it, and how long your intention is going to be in terms of how long you're going to be treating them. Not just you write it and, and, it, and it goes on indefinitely. And think about it and make sure that you feel that it's not just a knee-jerk reflex, that you feel that this patient really needs it. And try to have an exit strategy in a situation like acne or, you know, for an, a, a, an infection, a short-term treatment, it, it's easier, right? You're treating a, a, follic a staphylococcal folliculitis for... 15 days or whatever, because it's MRSA, whatever, whatever the case may be. But with the long-term treatment, we have to think about it, but even the short-term treatment has those effects. So I, I, sometimes when I'm talking about this, I'm feeling like the people are thinking, you know, Del Rosso, who are you to tell us we've been doing everything wrong? That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying, let's just think about it for all the reasons that you're talking about. But I have one final question for you, Chris. You know, you told me that you've been all over Italy, you love Italy, you're living on the East Coast, right? I don't know what it was like when you were in Nashville to get a pizza, right? I really don't know, right? But here you are on the East Coast, you're, you're there in New Haven. What's your preference? Do you like a really thin crust pizza? Or do you like that Chicago deep dish type of pizza? This is a very, very important question that we'd like to know the answer to. You know, I'm working with two other Italian guys on our team here today, right? And so uh, we want to know what Chris Bunick's answer is, scientifically thought out answer. The, the thicker the pizza, the better. I like the deep dish, thick pizza stuffed with everything. And particularly, I love uh, pineapple on my pizza. But I'll take the deep oh, dish Oh, you're killing day. me. 
pineapple and my that's heresy <laughs> oh my god but you're a deep dish guy yeah. okay is there a place in new haven that people should go to in that area where you where you are where you your go-to place for pizza well i, I don't particularly in new haven have a go-to place people some other people talk about uh pepe's pizza but you know i'm a i'm a big uh, fan of the the deep dish pizza I got in uh, Atlanta. When I grew up in the South Atlanta, there's this place called Upper Crust Pizza, and they had the best deep dish pizza, at least in the South. Uh, I don't know how it compares to Chicago, but it was wonderful. I loved it. Well, you know, that's why you're in you're in Yale because you're part of the Upper Crust. Chris, it's always great talking to you. Thanks so much for you know, tremendous insights. I compliment you on the research you're doing, and I'm sure more will be forthcoming. And, and I enjoy working with you closely on, on what we do together. Thanks a lot for being with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Jim. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Derms and Conditions. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at podcasts at fred.health. And most importantly, if you like this episode, subscribe to the Derms and Conditions podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. Thanks for joining us. We would like to thank Almerol for being today's sponsor.